You are tuned to KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, and Blackfoot. The time is 7 o'clock. This hour on FM 91, it's the City Club of Idaho Falls broadcast. You can hear City Club broadcasts on the final Monday of every month here on KISU. In this edition of the City Club of Idaho Falls, recorded on January 20th, Dan Popke, political columnist for the Idaho Statesman, talks on the topic, 25 years of Idaho politics, what's happening now, and what's changed. Introducing the forum guest is local reporter Carol Honus. Um, I am so excited to be here today because I am a super fan. I am like a freaky fan for Dan. He is one of the best writers. And like me, like Jay, he's been in Idaho a long time. So he truly, truly, truly gets the, uh, the background and, and the significance of the legislation that we pass in this state. Now, you know how Dave Adler stands up here and introduces people without ever looking a note? So not going to happen. So, <laughs> Dan came to Idaho in 1984 to work at the Idaho Statesman as a police reporter. Then in 86, he covered the Boise City Hall, and that was during Mayor Dirk Kempthorne's reign. Uh, he had assignments that included state government and politics and the Idaho legislature. Then it was in 1994, he got to become a political columnist, and he has now covered 23 sessions of the Idaho legislature. He has a bachelor's in political science from Santa Clara University, a master's in journalism from Columbia, a congressional fellow of the American Political Science Association working on Capitol Hill for Senator Jeff Bingaman, who was a Democrat from New Mexico, and he's now chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. And then in 1997 and 98, Dan was a journalism fellow at the University of Michigan. His first newspaper job was in Redding, California, at the uh, record searching, searchlight, is that right? Yeah. Uh, where he had local government, and then he was also a police reporter there. He is a native of Arizona, Tucson. He attended schools in Cupertino, is that right, in California, uh, through his junior year, and then he was a page at the U.S. House of Representatives and graduated from Capitol Page High School in Washington, D.C. That was back in 76. God, you're just a baby, Dan. Just a kid. Uh, in 2010, Dan won the Idaho Records Preservation Award for his coverage of efforts to secure public access to Governor Kempthorne's official papers. Oh, I so totally remember that. That was a good one. Then in 2007, here's the one. This is the one. Dan led the statesman's coverage of Senator Larry Craig's scandal, shall we say? Uh, the statesman's reporting was recognized as one of three finalists for a Pulitzer Prize. It was a phenomenal time in the news business, and I cannot wait to ask some questions about what you went through when you decided to break that story. In 2003, he won the Ted M. Knapp First Amendment Award from the Five State Pacific Northwest Newspaper Association, and with the help of the Log Cabin Literacy Center, Dan has helped start the Read the Same Book program. It's now called The Big Read. It's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, and this year's title is Jack London's Call of the Wild. This is so phenomenal because I listen to CDs as I drive back and forth every day from Blackfoot, and that's what I've started doing, to kill a mockingbird. I'm doing the exact thing to get back in those books we read in high school, and they're wonderful to hear again, to read again. Dan lives in Boise. He has two children. He has Chalice, who is 19. I'm very, I'm wondering about this. She's a journalism major. Seriously? <laughs> you couldn't talk her out of that? Never make any money? Oh, boy. And then he has uh, at the university, she's at the University of Oregon. Nicholas is 17. He begins college in the fall of 2012. And uh, Dan announces home games for Chalice's former basketball team, and that would be the Bora Lions. And he's also following the football field and wrestling mats at uh, Boise High School. 
this is my relationship with Dan. A, read his stuff so I know what's going on. And B, the few times we do go to the legislative sessions, it took me one half hour to figure out who I was going to stand by. <laughs> this is the guy asking the tough questions. This is the guy that knows. So from then on, whenever I went to legislature, I'm looking for Dan. I'm looking for Dan because Dan's going to know what the issues are. Dan knows the numbers. This guy, it's, it's an honor for us to have him here today. So get your questions ready. But Dan, if you'd like to join us up here, we are ready to hear from you. I can tell you I do not get treated this well at home, <laughs> including the, the, the promotional material, which uh, I've been mocked for in the newsroom, this, uh, you know, with the, all this stuff that Carol just talked about. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm a year late, as some of you might remember. Uh, I was supposed to be here and got stopped by a snowstorm, and I understand you did karaoke instead, led by Corey Tolley. And that must have, I'm sorry I missed that. Um, and I, I am, I'm supposed to talk about the 25 years that I've covered Idaho politics, which it just occurred to me as I was talking to Senator Hansen that uh, uh, this, I, my first session uh, was 1987, and uh, now it's 2012, so that's 25 years. And I, I want to review where we were then. Um, some of you are young enough that you won't remember, and um, some of you are old enough that you need your memories jogged. So, um, and I'm among that group. Uh, so in 1987, uh, the legislature was a very different uh, creature. It, it, it was a place where the, the value of making a deal was higher than uh, the value of being right and pure. Uh, and so I just, I'm going to give you some numbers. Um, the Senate then uh, had 26 Republicans and 16 Democrats. The House was 64-20. Uh, and in the House, uh, an interesting phenomenon had just happened. The pendulum swung that year uh, with the election of Tom Boyd, uh, who uh, then was part of what was called the Steelhead Caucus. And they were known for swimming upstream. They were moderate Republicans, uh, and there were uh, there were about 19 of them. If you count, if you count from the from the 1987 book, I may you'll recognize some of the names. I may read a few of them later. You also had Cecil Andrus, Democratic governor, in his rebirth, uh, just having been inaugurated for a third term. And so you had a, a balance because you had a Democratic governor that that obviously we don't have now. Um, Four years later, after the Republicans overplayed their hand on the abortion issue, uh, you had a tied Senate, 21-21, and uh, the House was 2-1, to 56-28 Republican. But four years after that, uh, with the retirement of Cecil Andrus uh, and Governor, well, then party chairman Batts, uh, very successful effort to bring the party back to its core Chamber of Commerce, Reagan Republican values, uh, there were 27 Senate Republicans and eight Senate Democrats, 57-13 in the House. And then in 2001, the, the, which was the low mark for the Democrats, there were only three Democratic senators. All of them were in leadership, three, three leadership positions. And the House was 61-9. to nine. 
Uh, Democrats have rebounded somewhat, but it, it, it doesn't make, uh, I mean, it, obviously it's better than having three to have seven senators uh, and 13 in the House as opposed to nine. But what you can't see from just looking at party affiliation is the retreat of the Republican in name only, the rhino. Uh, and uh, the, the, the moderates uh, have either been defeated in primaries, uh, you know, gone back to their business lives, or just given up. Uh, there are very few of them left. And those that do remain are subject to um, sanction by their, by their leadership. At the end of last session, uh, last day, final minutes of the, of the 2011 session, the Speaker, Lawrence Denny, stripped two moderate chairmen of their chairmanships. Leon Smith of Twin Falls lost his Transportation Committee chairmanship, and Tom Trail of Moscow lost his Agriculture Committee chairmanship. Earlier in the session, uh, I, I think this was probably not as much for partisan reasons. There were other more complex, complex reasons, but Sharon Block of Twin Falls was replaced as Health and Welfare Committee chairman by your own Janice McGeehan. I, I think that was in, in significant part because of the leadership had more comfort with her leading this very contentious debate about how to cut Medicaid programs. Um, I just, I do want to read you a few of the names from that 1987 session that, that some of you will remember. Steve Antone, Pam Bankson, Brent Broxson, Ed Brown, Jerry Deckard, Bob Fry, Dean Hagenson, Reed Hansen of Idaho Falls, Mary Hartung, Janet Hay, Doug Jones, Hildy Kellogg, Jack Kenevick, Doc Lucas, Gary Robbins, Dean Sorensen, Ruby Stone. Those folks, they're, they're, they are, they're, there are very few like them. Uh, you have Max Black now in the House. Um, you have uh, Eric, uh, Eric Anderson from the North. There are just very few of them left. And what, uh, that, that 1987 legislature also had a couple people who I think in large part because they came from a creature that had balance, um, uh, had become national figures, Mike Crapo and Mike Simpson, who were, as I said, they were in their second terms that year. And I remember Simpson just being, um, he was really out there back then. I mean, he was uh, a fire breather that could match any of these guys. Well, he paid his taxes, but... Um, uh, but he, he was shaped by the institution, of course he became speaker, and now we see him being among the national leaders and saying, look, if we're going to solve our debt crisis, both sides have got to come to the middle. And of course, Senator Crapo has been in the thick of it as well, even for a longer time. Um, but I, I don't know if the current legislator will, legislature will produce people of that caliber, because uh, there's a purge going on. Uh, and and it's, it, it's like uh, it's Soviet style almost. You, you, if you don't agree uh, all the time, you lose your chairmanship, as Leon Smith did. Um, I'm exaggerating somewhat there for rhetorical reasons, but, but you know, if you're not loyal enough, uh, off to Mexico City you go. And, uh, and uh, you know, Lenin, Lenin uh, won't be sending uh, an assassin, but um, you know, what, what happens to somebody like Leon Smith who loses his chairmanship? Can he win a primary next time? Will he just give up? Um, I don't know. But uh, I should make this clear, that the, 
the, the views of those who are now dominant, and this is particularly in the House, the Senate's a different creature, um, are genuine, heartfelt, uh, they, they are, they're not mean-spirited. They believe that the republic is in peril. And, and, to, um, and to cooperate in any way with the federal government is, is seen as disloyal, I, th I think, for, 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 for some of these folks. And they really, I, I, I'm not questioning the motives. I'm just t talking about uh, I, so that, uh, you know, for them, cooperation is a dirty word. Moderate is a dirty word. Um, and of course it's fed by, well you know their names, Limbaugh and O'Reilly and Hannity and Beck and people listen to that stuff all the time and it makes them not want to co make deals like they did in the old days, 25 years ago. Today, today's, uh, the latest example of this, the Speaker of the House, Lawrence Denny, appointed uh, uh, a member, well, the, the, Senator Hill appointed uh, and, and Speaker Denny appointed, and the party chairman, Norm Simanko, appointed members of the, new, of the redistricting commission, right? And so the court, Supreme Court this week said, got to start over. The, the plan you adopted is unconstitutional. Well, uh, the, the commission is reconvening on Thursday and Friday, and they are making noise. Sheila Olson from Idaho Falls is one of the commissioners who was appointed by Senator Hill. They're making noise about doing this in a couple of days. They think they can get this done. They got to get the county splits down to a minimum and they'll do the job. They were cooperative last time. They, they were not partisan. They upheld their oath of office. Remember, the people passed a constitutional amendment that said, we want redistricting not to be done by the legislature. We want it to be nonpartisan or bipartisan anyway and, uh, and to draw the best lines for the voter. Well, Dolores Crow. Uh, who uh, was chair of the House Rev and Tax Committee and one of the most stalwart opponents of tax increases of her generation, fought Senator Bunderson uh, over, over exemptions and, and, uh, other, and tax reform, uh, really one of the most conservative people that I've covered in the 25 years. The speaker said he wants her off the commission. Uh, the AP reported this late last night, and uh, he hadn't talked to Representative Crow, who's now retired and living in Nampa, uh, didn't have the courtesy to say, look, I want you off, and instead she finds out from a reporter. Uh, it turns out this morning the Attorney General issued a, a, a written opinion saying that the Speaker does not have the authority to remove her. So apparently she'll remain, but you've got to, I mean, to go back to Trotsky, I mean, Dolores Crow? Um, I, I just, that, that you would exile her. And I, I, I also believe that Chairman Simanko wanted Randy Hansen off. Uh, he didn't call the AP back, but I've heard that um, from, from people in a position to know that uh, Hansen was also uh, uh, on the chopping block, if you will. And, um, and Senator Hill uh, said that he was comfortable with uh, Sheila Olson remaining. So the question now, I, I, I think, in this next election is, will there be pushback? And I, you've st you're starting to see some. Um, the, there's a group in North Idaho called the North Idaho Republican Pact that formed in recent months. And actually, it, they formed almost a year ago. Uh, well, but right about a year ago, but didn't tell anybody. Uh, I mean, they filed their papers, but they, they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. They're quietly raising money. Uh, and I think you're going to see a slate of 
rhinos, uh, their opponents will call them. Uh, they don't even want to call themselves moderate. Remember, that's a dirty word now. They call themselves reasonable Republicans, um, which prompted this retort from, from one of the purists, Vito Barbieri of, of Hayden Lake. If I wanted a reasonable Repu Republican, he said, I'd vote for a Democrat. <laughs> so um, so it, 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 remember back to tw 25 years ago, Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, Republicans had a big tent. Um, uh, Dennis Olson had uh, applied that same principle here uh, as party chairman. Uh, let's win. And let's remember if we want our kids to be able to come back and have a career here, uh, they need to be able to get a good education. So let's support public and higher ed. Uh, Reagan, I mean, by the current standards, by Vito Barbieri's standards, and even though they put his picture on their web pages and talk about Reagan all the time, Reagan's a rhino by the current uh, uh, standards. He worked with Tip O'Neill. He worked with Dan Rostenkowski. He raised taxes. And that deal struck by Reagan and, and, and O'Neill and Rostenkowski was critical to uh, l laying the groundwork for the Clinton presidency to pass another tax hike that had the last balanced budget we've seen uh, during, the, during the end of the Clinton years. So um, to reflect on why things have changed so much, first of all, in, in, the, in these 25 years, leadership at the top really matters, and the absence of Cecil Andrus cannot be underestimated in terms of the, 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 the decline of the Democrats. He was an equalizer. He was a party builder. He raised money. He recruited candidates. They couldn't say no to Cecil Andrus. Well, now they, you know, what sane person is going to run as a Democrat for statewide office now? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uphill deal. You had, you had your... Uh, publisher here, of course, uh, who I consider to be a very sane person. I don't mean to question Jerry's sanity, but uh, your former publisher, I should say. Um, but it was, it was the, the structural disadvantages for the Democrats are so strong. Okay, so we have a governor uh, now who leads a very successful party, Butch Otter. All seven constitutional offices are held by Republicans, 80% of the legislature, all four members of the congressional delegation, but it's but the legislative, uh, uh, the legislative, the members of the legislature seem to be the tail wagging the dog here. Uh, the governor, it seems to me, is in retreat, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about why. Uh, it started in 2008 when Norm Simanko and Raul Labrador and Tom Luna engineered the uh, the ouster of the of the moderate former Boise Cascade Vice President Kirk Sullivan as party chairman, and Simanko was replaced him. Just if you, if you haven't noticed, just as a footnote on Simanko, um, he ran for Eagle City County for mayor of Eagle. I don't know if you if any of you followed how that went. He just got creamed this last election, which was an interesting. Uh, I, I did not expect that. I assumed he was going to win. Um, so I, I I think we still don't know what that means. It's a small city, relatively small city municipal election, but um, just something to store in the back of your mind. But in 08, so the governor fights hard to keep, keep uh, Kirk Sullivan. He loses that. And, and, and then he loses his transportation initiative, that he wanted to do something to restore funding or to, or to, 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 to do what it takes to, to overcome the backload because he thinks 
roads and bridges are an essential duty of government and critical to our economic development. But he couldn't win that fight, and, it, and it, he, he lost it in an in a embarrassing way. And I, I think he may have lost heart, as I said. Um, a few examples. I wrote about this in December. Uh, rather than uh, lead a trade mission, which he was originally planned to have led to Mexico and Brazil, he sent Brad Little and went to the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas. Um, a couple weeks ago at the, at the AP's pre-legislative uh, event, uh, he did a, I thought he gave a very nice performance. He stayed long. He took extra questions. I think he's concerned about this view that he's disengaged. But then he completely misstated uh, whether uh, what, what would be the impact of not, uh, uh, joint, uh, not establishing a state health insurance exchange. He said it would cost the state $300 million in, in Medicaid funds and later had to admit that that was just wrong. Um, I wrote a piece uh, that the governor refused to comment on uh, about his schedule. I looked at three years of scheduling records and uh, comparing 2008 to 2011, He's, he's uh, scheduled 27 fewer percent, 27 percent fewer appointments. He's uh, devoted 29 percent fewer hours to those appointments. He's traveling about a third less in terms of hours uh, measured for travel around the state, excepting the Boise area. Uh, and his personal hours are up 28 percent. He took 41 days off in that, in that last 12-month period. He had a full schedule on six of the 52 Mondays. He works at home from Mondays now. Um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to, about, to us about this. And I, I find, found that curious because he is such a fine communicator. He is among the most charming people, many of you know him, uh, that, that you will ever cross. And I, I still puzzle about why he didn't turn on the charm and explain. So look, yeah, I work at home on Mondays. But I'm, I'm there, I'm engaged, I, uh, you know, I, I'm, um, I, I have to work a lot of weekends. I mean, there are explanations for these things. Um, and, and, but instead, what he did, his response was on the State of the State Day, which was the day after this story ran, was to joke about it. Um, and, and perhaps, unfortunately for him, public television, the mic was still on after he gave his address. And for those who were listening on public TV, you could hear him joke with Benny Sursa about how, well, it's Monday. I'm not supposed to be here, am I? Something like that. And I just, I, I, I don't get that. Um, I, I, of course, he said uh, in Coeur d'Alene last month that he was running for re-election. His own campaign manager, Debbie Fields, said that that was a big surprise to her. I. I don't think he knows what he's doing in 2014. It's too soon to tell, but he wants to be, he wants to keep, uh, of course, his influence. And to say you're not running again, is, it's not a smart thing to do. I really don't know what he's going to do, but, I, but I, if we don't see him ratcheting things up, I think it does suggest that, uh, that he won't run again. Um, Okay, let's talk about a few other issues, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of those cards have been written on because, okay, because I don't want to talk for too much longer without being prompted. Um, I, I should say this about Governor Otter. This has been an extraordinarily difficult time to be governor. Four years in a row of just brutal budget cuts. 
uh, a, a recalcitrant legislature that didn't want, that just refused to uh, make a deal. Well, that's, that's a bit of an exaggeration. They did offer him a deal on transportation for $68 million in 2000, in the 2008 session. And it didn't seem like enough. That was probably a misjudgment on his part. But he didn't know the economy was going to tank. So you do, I, I, th I think you do need to leaven all I've said with the fact that uh, he's endured the toughest period for an Idaho governor. Uh, you could argue the mid-80s recession. That was very tough, too. And of course, we had tax increases uh, uh, under Governor Evans. But uh, I do think that if he does run for a third term, the lure of being able to govern in better times is a powerful one. And in terms of legacy, I, 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 I think if he, do, if he does go again, it will be to say, hey, all that stuff I said I wanted to do, I still want to do it, and we're going to do it. So I, I, I think you could see him come back and uh, do that. Just a quick rundown of some of the other issues that the legislature is dealing with. The governor's proposed $45 million in unspecified tax cuts. He just said, here's the amount. You figure out how to apportion $45 million. And it's, it's the, the, the children in the legislature, if you will, uh, uh, that's not my metaphor necessarily, uh, the, the House uh, Assistant Majority Leader, who Scott Bedke of, of Oakley, who is uh, uh, on the Tax Committee and has a lot of influence on these matters, said, yeah, he gave us a box of Legos. We all have the same box of Legos, and we have to um, put them uh, together how we see fit. And there are some who are concerned that letting the children play might be counterproductive and that they won't be able to get anywhere because there are too many options. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a big problem. Senator Hill thinks that uh, otherwise, that by setting that marker down, $45 million, that you move on from the conversation about, okay, how much is there available for tax relief to what kind of tax relief are we going to have? Um, the, the, the IACI, the, the big uh, business lobby, is pressing hard for elimination of the personal property tax. Uh, that would be very valuable to the utilities and Micron, these capital-intensive uh, companies, uh, but not so good for the, ordinary, you know, the LSC or the sole proprietor who's paying income tax. Uh, and so it looks like the rate reducers, those who would lower both the corporate and personal income tax rates, are, have the inside track on a, on a, on a tax cut. But um, the big problem is, will the legislature agree with the governor that there's $45 million on the table? And we'll find out on Tuesday uh, when the, the committee that sets the legislature's revenue figure meets. They delayed their meeting a couple of weeks. They were supposed to meet last week. Um, and here's the problem. The governor projects 5.8% growth in fiscal 13, which starts in October. And uh, not October, that's the municipal, sorry, it starts on July 1st. And the committee median, the governor's number is 5.8% growth of the 18 members on this revenue committee. Uh, their median number is 3.5. And that erases the money available for tax cuts. Um, what, should I quit and start taking questions? Because I have a few more things, but I, I don't need to go over this. We'll get to this stuff. I mean, John McGee and uh, uh, restoring student comes students come first. I can talk about that if there aren't enough questions. KISU programming is supported by Votes Heating and Air in Pocatello, providing a full range of Lennox heating products and complete service after the sale.
Votes works day and night to make sure its customers are comfortable. More details at votesheatingandair.com. KISU programming is supported by Votes Heating and Air in Pocatello, providing a full range of Lennox heating products and complete service after the sale. Votes works day and night to make sure its customers are comfortable. More details at votesheatingandair.com. And you are getting a lot of questions, so uh, yeah, Good. I think this will be just perfect for you. In fact, here's one right now. Is Luna, in your opinion, moving education in the right direction in Idaho? Well, I don't really feel comfortable answering that question. I, I don't think it's for me to say whether he's leading us in the right direction, I, I, but I can critique the way he's handled this reform. He didn't ask anybody uh, for help. He did it in a vacuum. He and the governor. Uh, this is last fall. Uh, he's there've been differing accounts, but what he told me was this didn't come together until after he was reelected, and um, they're now having to rejigger the uh, the online graduation requirement, uh, and the the they passed the rule that's gonna has the two. You may remember he wanted eight of the 46 courses I believe you have to take to graduate high school. He wanted eight of those to be online. And he had to back off to two. And he had wanted at least one of those to be asynchronous, which means you, the teacher is not online with you at the moment. Uh, you can do it at three in the morning if you want. And the rule that the state board passed call, called for the one asynchronous course, but the but both the Meridian and Boise school districts, the two largest in the state, stood up in the, in the hearing and said, uh, this doesn't work for us. I mean, you, we'll, we're happy with two requirements, but let us decide what local control. And that's, that got people like Mitch Toriansky, who's a freshman senator from Boise in a competitive district, spooked. And, uh, and so they're going to have to change that. I just, I, I think it would have been uh, wise had, had Luna at least tried to bring in the stakeholders and he could have said, look, I reached out to these folks, I did the best I could, um, maybe some of them would be on board. I, you probably would not have gotten the Education Association to come on board with gutting their collective bargaining rights. I mean, that, that wasn't, uh, but, but maybe on this online thing, which is the, the piece of it that has a lot of people excited in terms of its potential, um, you, you, you'd, have, you'd have had a little more moral authority if at least you'd talk to them. Um, there, right now, there's a very, and I just wrote about this in today's paper, uh, that you can get online. Uh, there's a battle between the governor and the superintendent about $20 million that in the Students Come First bill that passed last year is to be siphoned off from salaries and go to buy technology and pay for the pay for performance plan. So the governor funded pay for performance and he funded the technology, but he didn't fund this 20 million that is now in some lawmakers' minds on the table uh, because of the surplus, the small surplus. Uh, and Luna wants it. I think he sees it, as I wrote today, as important to winning the fight to keep the law's law, as you know, the referendum, uh, there'll be the three referendums on the November, November ballot that to overturn students come first. I, I think it's interesting that you've got folks like your legislators here, Senator Mortimer 
and uh, Senator Thompson, or Representative Thompson, were the floor sponsors, and probably will again be the floor sponsors of the, the K-12 budget bills. And they are concerned uh, about restoring, they want this, well, at least, at least Thompson is fighting to get this $20 million restored, and Mortimer doesn't, uh, doesn't like the notion that the governor has $25 million in, the, in a contingency budget, if you will, for, for salaries for teachers. If the revenues meet their mark, then they get one-time bonus money. Uh, and and uh, Senator Mortimer called that um, weird accounting. So I, you know, that, that broader question, I, I don't feel comfortable saying whether I think, you know, he's doing a good job leading. I just, I think he could be doing a better job. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Um, do you recall a governor in Idaho's history that ignored his economic staff as much as it seems to some people, Governor Otter has, Mike Ferguson, you know, in particular, usually comes out being right? Well, yeah, and Ferguson was mostly right, and, and Otter, of course, lost his bet with Cecil Andrus, and I assume he paid him the $100 because the, the revenue figure was higher than, than the governor ex expected. But, you know, I, I really am not... Without reviewing the record, I can't say whether Otter has differed more with his economists than prior governors. Um, you know, Ferguson's kind of an interesting character. Now that he's been freed from the employment of the state government, he's kind of become a contrarian who's, uh, for example, um, who, who is countering openly now uh, the, 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 uh, the governor. He... Uh, the new chairman of the Senate Tax Committee, who replaced Senator Hill, uh, well, who replaced Senator Stegner, who became the lobbyist for the University of Idaho uh, in last month, uh, Quarter, Tim Quarter of Mountain Home, had a hearing on Tuesday to talk about the personal property tax. And he had Stephen Cook, who's an ag economist from the University of Idaho, and he had Mike Ferguson, the governor's, the longtime uh, uh, protected. He was not a he was not a serve at the pleasure of the governor employee. He was a, uh, what do you call that? Uh, he, he was a, a civil service protection uh, economist. And the, so Corder invites Ferguson and this guy from the U of I to just tear up the, a study that Iaki uh, had, had uh, commissioned that showed a six to one um, uh, uh, in return on investment for, for eliminating the personal property tax. Um, so I, you know, I think, I, I have heard Ferguson say that in the 20 some years he was the chief economist that no governor uh, interfered with his um, advice, didn't ask him to change his numbers. And I don't, I don't think Otter did that either. But in these tough times, he was conservative. And I, I don't think you can fault him for that. I, I know that a lot of people do. But um, it's a lot better to make the cuts with a lot of, with careful review as, as uh, Chairman McGeehan oversaw than it is to have to do holdbacks later on. So I think that's where he's coming from. What about the ethics um, commission? The bill that they're trying to get passed, uh, let's take in, like, for example, the um, not being able to become a lobbyist until at least a year goes by. Yeah. Where are you on that? Well, the, the, there was uh, 
uh, a lot of hope and sort of unexpected hope uh, on the part of Democrats. They, they've been talking about ethics for a number of years, and, and uh, I think in 2009, Senator Davis, uh, from here, of course, uh, and then Minority Leader Kelly had a bill, uh, that, a financial disclosure bill, that got through the Senate unanimously, and the Speaker held it in the House, didn't go anywhere. Uh, so with Phil Hart not paying his taxes, and John McGee and the DUI, and uh, you know issues about the Speaker telling people they should hire a particular lobbyist, the climate seemed to be, and the national climate, don't discount the, the nationwide mood about politics and Congress being at a low ebb. A lot, of, you know, a lot of ordinary people don't distinguish between the legislature and members of Congress. They think, you know, really. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a comment on our educational system or the uh, boring nature of politics, but people confuse those things. And in that climate, the legislature it, they, they want to do something to restore faith. So the Democrats have been uh, used this uh, the week before the session, Associated Press preview, to talk about ethics. And they, uh, they've got, I think there are four legs to it. The, 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 the revolving door for lobbyists, so you got a cooling you off. You can't, you can't walk out the door as the governor's chief of staff, as uh, Jason Kreisenbeck did last fall, and immediately go to work for uh, Idaho Power. Um, you got to wait a year, like they do in the U.S. House or in the Senate. It's two years in the U.S. Senate. Uh, they have they have an independent ethics commission. They have financial disclosure, and what's the fourth piece? Anybody remember? Not helping there, you out here. I think there is a fourth wrinkle: financial disclosure, revolving door, ethics commission. It's awful. I can't remember what the fourth one is. But anyway, the the speaker said uh, after the minority said we want the, we have this ethics commission idea. He said, you know, I think that's a pretty good idea. Uh, but then the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party, in the for, in the in the name of the party chairman Larry Grant, who you may remember ran for Congress against Bill Sally few years back, uh, put out a press release uh, condemning the Republicans for their culture of corruption. Well, this is just a few days after the speaker had made nice, and then he, you know, uh, dumps on the, on, on the Republicans. And the speaker responded by saying, well, maybe we can't work with those guys if they're going to call us names, which was a reasonable thing to say. Um, but it seems to have been patched over. Um, I, 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 but I... You know, the noises were promising. Uh, you've got Senator Hill, who is, those of you who know him or know of him, integrity is very important to, to, to him, and appearances are very important to him. Uh, he first made his name in the Senate as chairman of the Ethics Committee um, on a story that I covered. Uh, that's how I first really got to know him. You'll remember maybe the Jack Noble uh, uh, incident where he was ultimately forced to resign from the Senate because he brought a bill that would personally benefit him by allowing him to open a state uh, liquor uh, uh, contract store across the street from an elementary school in Melba. And, uh, and he didn't tell anybody. 
and Senator Hill was part was the leader of the process that that g g prompted him to resign. So he cares a lot about this stuff. Um, but I earlier I quoted Vito Barbieri, the guy, guy who said that if I wanted a if I wanted a moderate, I'd vote for a Democrat. Uh, he's apparently the speaker, one of the speaker's choices to serve on the working group that's going to negotiate the ethics reform package. And I don't know if that's a good sign or not. Barbieri has been a big defender of Phil Hart. Um, so who knows? I, I, you know, I, I think in the end they will pass something. Uh, I, it's just in their interest. People are soured on politics, and it's a way to say we hear you. Does it seem like the aisle that used to divide Democrats and Republicans is now an aisle between Republicans and more, more so Republicans? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, I was talking about Trotsky earlier. I mean, that, that um, people of Dolores Crow's rank and record could be publicly embarrassed by the Speaker of the House, called out as being ineffective and disloyal to her party. It's just, I mean, I, she's not quite as sainted as Sheila Olson, but I'll tell you, over in Western Idaho, pretty, pretty close. And uh, I, I just don't know where it stops. I, 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 but maybe this is uh, illustrative if you think about pen pendulums. Some of you may remember Speaker Stivers uh, from Twin Falls, who was, he would be comfortable with uh, this current house, and they would, have been, they would have been comfortable with him. Really, really smart guy, but take no prisoners, and, and um, a little bit tenured, as I think Speaker Denny is sometimes, to have taken on Crow like he did yesterday. Um, Speaker Stivers famously, and this was, this was in the mid-'80s, and the economy was tough. And it was, uh, Cecil Andrus was coming back to run again, saying, I'm going to restore this economy. And there were a lot of, you know, a lot of mainstream Republicans. I mean, Andrus doesn't win without Republican votes who, who helped him narrowly defeat Dave Leroy. And, uh, but, and, and part of the reason people were, were ready to make a change, ready to vote again for a Democrat in this heavily Republican state was the rhetoric of people like Tom Stivers, who, uh, in, in reaction to a heartfelt letter from a public school teacher who said, look, you know, I'm making whatever it was then, $21,000 a year, and I've invested this much time in getting my education and my certificate, and her name was Mary. And it was, a, it was I mean, you know, you could, you could have written, a, you could have said, look, Mary, we don't have the money, and here's why, and that's, that, you know, we wish we could pay you more, we value education, our kids are our future, you know the rhetoric. Stivers' reply was two words, goodbye, Mary. And I think this group is getting perilously close to being potentially character, caricatured in the same manner. Now, there's not a, I'm, you know, there's that goodbye Mary letter was something that a lot of people could understand. And I, I don't think they've done anything that stupid, but uh, I don't know, this Dolores Crow thing is awfully close. We did did I answer the question? Yeah, we did figure out it was a per diem for the guys that live close. Per diem, yes. Yeah, and, there, and there's also talk about pensions. Um, legislators who get 
who have, say, 16 years of service in the legislature uh, and then get appointed to a high-level uh, job running a department like Bill Deal at insurance, um, get credit for all those years of part-time service, just as if it had been full-time services when it comes to calculating their Percy benefit. And there's, there are some legislators who are talking about uh, uh, making that, uh, prohibiting that. There is also in the mix uh, judicial retirement, which particularly Senator or Representative Lake, Chairman Lake from Blackfoot, is is big on. I, I don't. I think the pension thing is the hardest part. Uh, the per diem, they need to clarify that. I mean, that John McGee and Kurt McKenzie, who live in Caldwell, were getting $122 a day in the case of McKenzie to sleep on his law office couch in Boise, and uh, in the case of McGee to sleep at his parents' house, the place he was walking barefoot the night that he jackknifed that trailer. Um, uh, it's, you know, they, and they're, they're not taking it now, by the way, but, but, but there was confusion. I don't think that they were intentionally um, taking advantage of the system, but they've got to make it clear that you've got to actually be commuting to get that money. A University of Idaho survey indicated a majority of Idahoans describe themselves as independents. Would you think that's true? I, which survey was that? Does the questioner know? I'm not, because I, I'm not saying that's, that didn't show up in one survey and independents get pretty close, but Republicans still identify in the 40s, in the 40th percentile, and the independents in the 30s and Democrats in the teens. Maybe they get to 20. Uh, and, and that's rough and dirty a lot, you know, surveys over the years. What, what about the close primary, though? Do you think that might swing <sighs> some people? I, I, it is, I think, a lot of the, 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 the problem, I think, for the Republican, um, you know, incredibly effective, successful, I mean, stop and think. Why do they need to do this? It's beyond me. But uh, win, win, win. Most Republican state in the nation, you know, I mean, over time, Wyoming now has a more Republican legislature, but, but we're still second. Um, why they need to close the primary, I mean, these are arguments you've all heard, but I think that the thing that they have not accounted for is voters are going to show up on May 15th, or now uh, the primary may have been August, so this could help educate more people, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do that. I think the, I'm getting off the track here. If you want to talk about the August primary, we can. Senator, or Representative, I keep calling representatives senators today. Chairman Lurcher uh, from here uh, had introduced a bill yesterday, to, or day before yesterday, no, it was just yesterday, to move the primary to the first Monday after the first Tuesday in August. Anyway, when people show up to vote at the primary and find out that they have to register as a Republican if they want to play in the primary that they've played in for generations without having to tell anybody which ballot they picked, I think it's going to tick off a lot of people. Um, whether that will make them vote for a Democrat, you know, I, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, although, if the Democrats miss the opportunity, as they did last time, and as they have in many elections, to have uh, a decent slate of alternatives, I mean, they, they concede control of the legislature before the game even starts. They don't file enough people. Um, you know, maybe if Phil Hart had had an opponent last election, that seat could have been, it, it's a tough district, really, really tough district for Democrats, but 
Um, I, I think that, that how long they'll remember that they don't get to vote unless they register, I don't know. I, I, but I do think, Carol, it has the potential to push that independent number up and say, well, now, wait a second. Why, why do I have to tell everybody? We, we never used to have to do this. Very good. There's just a couple more um, state questions, and then I would really like to talk to you a little bit about your Pulitzer Prize winning uh, article. Um, let me see. I'm going to save that one for just a second. What do you think? What do you What do you think about moving that primary to August? Is Is it just because redistricting is falling behind, and so nobody knows where they're running yet? Or um, I, I, that That certainly gave it some oomph that it didn't have because the court's ruling. Although I, I do think this redistricting commission is going to do its work in just a few days, if not by the end of next week, by the following week, they'll get it done. It'll be tested again in court, presumably. Um, I think the court will act quickly if, if it is asked to. So, I, you know, I don't know if that's going to stick around and be a problem or not. I know the county clerks are concerned about whether they're going to have time to administer the election. They moved the election date up this year. It used to be the fourth Tuesday in May. Now it's the third Tuesday in May. So it's May 15th. It's pretty early. Um, but Chairman Lurcher had this notion before. He's been, before the, anybody knew that the redistricting was going to be delayed. Uh, he uh, d uh, objects to the sort of nonstop uh, from session to campaign. And if they don't get out until the first week of April and the primary is in mid-May, it doesn't allow them a lot of time to campaign. And a lot of, uh, many, many legislators don't like the, the appearance of raising money during the session. Um, and this, so putting it in August would just, you know, give them more flexibility. But the county clerks, I am told, and I've not even talked to any of them, but the county clerks, and Lurcher mentioned this himself, they're writing their budgets in August. And, uh, and they don't, they're concerned about the workload of, of trying to comply with their statutory obligation to finish the budget, uh, and uh, which for, for an October 1 cycle uh, and, and running elections. So, you know, my guess is they won't change it. Um, there, there is also sort of a, a conspiracy theory among the handful of moderates that are left that if you have an August primary, which we got rid of in 1980, you could also go back, you'd have time to go back to the, the convention system, which we also used to have, uh, that were, where, where you could only get on the ballot if you passed a certain threshold. I think it was 20%. Is that right, Sheila? Uh, and so if you couldn't get the 20% at the convention, which, of course, is a very small number of core uh, party faithful that are willing to go to a convention, um, then you don't make it up to the ballot. And, and you, some of you probably know that Senator Bennett in, uh, in Utah lost his job over this last cycle because he, he couldn't get on the ballot. I mean, I, and, and this is not a new idea in Idaho. It's been talked about at the, and, and rejected, I believe, at the, at the last state party convention. Is, it, is that right, or was it two years before that? Anybody remember? Anyway, it's been a topic of conversation to go back to the convention system. And, I mean... This wouldn't mean that would happen, but the conspiracy theorists, ther theorists are worried about it. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit, of, take you back to the Senator Larry Craig story. 
I mean, that, that was your baby, and I know you had help at the Statesman, but can you, can you walk us through just a little bit? What did you guys go through before you decided to go ahead and run with the story? Well, I, I can't believe that anybody else but you, Carol, would want to know about this, but <laughs> it was five years ago. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, five years ago, almost five years ago. Um, I'll give you the short version. Uh, there had there had been uh, chatter about Senator Craig dating back even to his days in the legislature in the 70s. When he got elected to the House, the U.S. House, his first term, there was a page scandal. And he preemptively uh, told a television reporter that he was not implicated in the page scandal, and nobody had asked him if he'd been implicated. And so ever since that moment, it, it sort of was in the, it went beyond the, the rumor mongering to, you know, why did he, why did he bring that up? Um, and so it had been kind of a nasty um, topic of speculation every time he was on the ballot. Is someone going to, you know, stand up and say something to damage the senator like Newt Gingrich's wife did last night? And it never happened until uh, the fall of... 06. And there was, uh, you may remember, uh, who was the guy from Florida that was uh, the congressman from Florida, how soon we forget, that was texting the pages and suggesting that he might want to get together with him. Um, why, you, you, nobody's remembering this guy's name. But a lot of us are 50 and older, and so yeah, names are gone. It's terrible. I can't remember that. Anyway, it was in that context that, and, and this is when the Democrats took back the House the U.S. House, and uh, it was, there were, you know, people were doing things that had never been done before uh, to try and win elections, and, the, and, they, were, and they were, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, thought they were playing dirty. I mean, sometimes they got it right, but anyway, Mark Foley, Mark Foley, is that right? Um, so this blogger, who was an activist, who, uh, you know, a gay rights activist, had set out to out members of Congress and their staff. His name is Mike Rogers. And he, in the fall, just before the election, it was October, he said, well, I, I talked to this guy, and he said, Larry Craig, uh, I've talked to this guy that says that he had, he had sex with a sexual encounter with Larry Craig in the Union Station restroom just a few blocks from the Senate. And we didn't run that story at the Statesman. I believe... Corey Tolley wrote a column about, was, that, was it Corey that did that? I'm starting to get these things confused. Would have been Marty. Or maybe it was Marty. No, somebody was on the campaign bus. I think it was Corey. But some of the paper, I think the post, I'm pretty sure the post register did this story uh, about uh, how Craig dealt with it. So they published the story in some manner. Lewiston published the story in some manner. Spokane published the story. We sent a reporter to the senator's house, knocked on the door at 9.30 at night. He answers in his PJs, and he says, no, that is not true. So we didn't run anything, nothing, not a word, even though it was all over the blogosphere and in the mainstream media. And my boss said, what, 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 tell me about this. She was fairly new, and I gave her the background and the stuff I just started off describing, and she said, well, will we ever run the story down? Not really. I mean, we've 
chased rumors a few times, but no. She said, well, I think we need to see if it's, uh, if we can, um, I, she didn't say prove or disprove, but that's, that's the best phrase I can come up with. You need to run the story down. Five months later, uh, and I worked on some other things, but essentially five months later, I sat down with the senator, a bunch of us, there was a big group at his house, and we did this interview, and he flatly denied all of it. And we had, at that point, anonymous sources uh, who were unwilling to put their names out there, including the guy from Union Station, who I met. And I, you know, he was credible. I had, I had good reason to believe that he would have recognized Larry Craig in the, in the bathroom. Uh, but we didn't do the story then because it was the word of a senior United States senator of enormous credibility, 26 years of service, and these anonymous men. So we still didn't do the story. That was in May. When we learned in August of his guilty plea, then the game changed and we published the story. And the, the reason I am convinced that we were uh, honored with the Pulitzer finalist thing, you know, one of three, the Washington Post won for the coverage of, of the Virginia Tech shootings and deserved to, was it was, a, uh, it was a compliment to my editor, who, Vicki Gowler, who had the good sense to say, we are not running this story based on this blogger and his sources we don't know. We are doing the homework and then withholding it even after, ha because we still felt like we didn't have enough, and until the guilty plea. So it was our restraint that was responsible for, for that recognition. Thank you. Um, we appreciate this so much, Dan. Thank you very much for coming down. Uh, we'll have you again because there will always be issues. We always <laughs> like to present our speakers with a City Club of Idaho Falls mug. Please I'll put bring it on this your to desk. the Boise City Club and show them. <laughs> show them how it's done. And just so you know, um, there is a group in Idaho Falls, as red you know, as Eastern Idaho is. Um, we are developing shades of red now. And so I haven't quite decided what shade we are, but there, there, are, there is kind of a movement of uh, very middle-of-the-road, perhaps reasonable Republicans, that are saying, time to quit sitting on our butts, people. Start writing the letters and start being heard, because they're only hearing from the minority, and there's a big majority out here. So there's a lot of action coming, and I think you're going to see it out of eastern Idaho. So again, thank you very much. You've honored us with this today. You've been listening to the City Club of Idaho Falls broadcast. Join us for the City Club Forum broadcasts on the final Monday of every month here on FM 91. You've been listening to a forum that was recorded on January 20th with guest Dan Popke, political columnist for the Idaho Statesman. The topic for this forum was 25 years of Idaho politics, what's happening now, and what's changed. 
Coming up next month for the Idaho Falls City Club, it's United States Attorney for the District of Idaho, Wendy J. Olson. That's February 24th at noon. And in March, Jeffrey Sayer, Director of the Idaho Department of Commerce, addresses the City Club on the topic Moving at the Speed of Business. That's Friday, March 30th at the Benyon Student Union Building. Find out more about these forums at ifcityclub.com, where you can also make your lunch reservations or listen to an archived program. This is KISU, Pocatello, Idaho Falls, and Blackfoot.